In the 13th century, the monk Dogen left Japan to sail for the shores of China. He didn't know what challenges would face him in his pilgrimage, nor did he know that he would someday become one of the most famous Zen masters in history by founding the Sato Zen School. This is Logos-ish. Join us as we explore Dogen's masterwork, The Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. Hey everybody, welcome back to Logos-ish. We are really excited to be here. We're talking about uh, Zen today and Dr. Stephen Hines' new book, Readings of Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. So it's going to be a really fun conversation. I'm joined today by Garrett and Brian. How are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty good, John. Uh, glad to be back on. Life is good in Norfolk. Uh, it has snowed three times in the last eight days. Wow. No snow in Florida. It, it rained quite a bit. We had a tornado warning. That is about as fancy as Florida is getting right now. <laughs> yeah, we also had cold and rain and a lot of conversation about how everybody's excited that it wasn't the 24 inches of snow that we had once upon a time back in 1973. So, you know, apparently that was the year South Carolina decided to buy a snowplow for the first time. Or so I hear, you know, this couldn't just all be stuff that's just floating around in the air. Who knows? But why don't we go ahead and get down to business today? It's good to see you all. We are joined by Dr. Stephen Hine, Professor of Religious Studies and History and Director of Asian Studies at Florida International University. How are you today, Dr. Hine? Good. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're really excited. This is a, a topic that I um, really enjoy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I am a professor at Florida International University, as you mentioned, in uh, Miami, Florida, one of the, the uh, big state uh, research universities in Florida. And I've been teaching here since 1997, so it's almost 25 years. Uh, before that, I taught at Penn State University. When I came to FIU, I had the opportunity to start up a small Asian studies program, an interdisciplinary program, uh, with emphasis uh, primarily on um, China and Japan, languages and culture. And it's grown quite a bit. And we have a steady flow of uh, undergraduate students and an MA program that graduates about nine or 10 uh, students a year. Uh, but most of those students that I work with at the MA level actually are not necessarily interested in, in my field of uh, religion or Zen Buddhism. The topic of uh, today's discussion, uh, Dogen, founder of one of the main schools of Zen Buddhism, uh, because it's interdisciplinary and they're interested in many different topics, but a lot of students are interested in Japanese uh, animation, in uh, the manga, the comic books, and uh, there's a lot of traditional folklore and philosophy that's embedded in those kind of current uh, media. And so uh, a lot of times they are eager to learn some of the historical background, some of the medieval roots of, of things that they've uh, been enjoying since uh, childhood. I got interested in uh, Dogen when I was in graduate school in the uh, 1970s. Zen Buddhism was a field of study that had been going on for a number of years, but had primarily focused on one of two sects known as the Rinzai sect. Dogen's from the other sect known as the Soto sect. But for various reasons, up into uh, the mid-1970s, focus in America was almost entirely on, on the Rinzai school and not much was known about Dogen or the Soto school. Suddenly, 
that started changing and there was a flow of translations and, and books on Dogen and, and the Soto uh, school, traditional and modern, and it became a, an area of interest. So I kind of jumped into that field because it combined my interest in medieval uh, Japanese culture, in Buddhist philosophy, and the kind of comparative uh, religious thought and, uh, and mysticism and meditation. So all those things were combined in the figure of Dogen, who lived in the uh, early uh, 1200s and was famous for going to China for a few years in his 20s and studying meditation there. And then he brought, um, he was one of the main people that brought Zen Buddhism back to uh, Japan. So Zen started in Japan in those early uh, decades of the 1200s and established the uh, Zen school. During my years of studying uh, Dogen, I primarily went to uh, a major university in, in Tokyo where they have a very large Buddhist studies department that, and, and many of the professors are dedicated to studying Dogen and, and the writings from, from that period. So I tried to immerse myself in that. But also, um, I think one of the interesting things about any field where you're looking at pre-modern religious thinkers and other, other great forms of expression of uh, traditional culture, whether it's uh, Japan or East Asia or any part of the world, I think one of the things we try to do is to kind of recreate what was the worldview like back then as best we can see it in today's world. So, you know, modern Japan is very um, uh, high tech and, you know, uh, uh, quite a different world in modern Tokyo today than the traditional world. But you do see evidence of of the traditions quite a bit in Japan. I think that's one of the things people, at least my students, uh, like about Japan is that as modern as it is, the uh, traditional worldview still comes across in many different ways. And um, and also, if you travel outside of the city, and, and Dogen's main temple was up in the uh, mountains north of uh, Kyoto, you know, you can really feel the traditions are still alive uh, there. They've obviously been changed and altered over the years, but there is a sense of uh, continuity. Um, and that's one of the intriguing uh, features. And as more people worldwide have got interested, you know, it has a kind of mixed effect because it calls attention and, and, and creates uh, funds that help to restore uh, the way these old uh, facilities, the temples and monasteries looked to, to kind of restore them to their old style. But at the same time, it kind of creates a commercialism and a congestion pre-COVID, of course, uh, of too many tourists uh, visiting. and But, you know, it, it's good to see that people are interested. There's a lot of translations of Dogen in English in these 45 years uh, since it started. Um, his main writing, called The Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, which is our topic today, has been translated several times in, in a number of languages. And, you know, there's, it's triggered off uh, many different writings about Dogen, sometimes um, uh, people will take one chapter from the book or one one small group of chapters. Sometimes they'll write more generally, but there, there are dozens of excellent uh, books. One of the things about a field like this is that you have the academic side, and then you have what people call the practitioner side. So there's a lot of American Zen practitioners, and they're often very interested and motivated to, to learn the traditions and, and maybe in some cases to study Japanese, to go to Japan, to, to get it firsthand. So my aim in, in this book, uh, which was part of a series published by Columbia University Press, was to do a couple of things. One was to present a book that would be good for advanced undergraduates and also graduate students and some other uh, specialists in the field 
and trying to sum up some of the main details of Dogen's main writing in several hundred pages uh, with an analysis on the history of it and the philosophy that's expressed. But also, I, you know, I had my eyes on a wider audience of the, of the in, informed and motivated practitioners who are eager to enhance their experiences with the firsthand knowledge of, of uh, what Dogen uh, was writing. I think uh, even though there's so many translations and so much interest that's been expressed, there's still, in a field like this, there's still a lot of uh, what I would call the black holes, like uh, unexplored areas, untold stories, ideas that have been misunderstood because kind of uh, stereotypes build up in the early days of, of when Dogen was being studied in the West and, and people never bothered to correct a lot of those stereotypes and assumptions. So that's, that's my goal in this book. And, and as a final point of my self-intro here, uh, let me mention an element of, of my personal experience. I'm primarily um, an academic and um, a, a scholar. And so I am trying to be a, a distance and look at the material objectively. But of course, in a field like this, you can't help but get carried away sometimes or uh, very impressed by Dogen's ability as a writer, as a thinker to do uh, brilliant, ingenious, uh, creative things with his uh, literary skills, his rhetorical flourishes, and his uh, insights of wisdom. And so, um, I, I, you know, I've kind of uh, tried try to uh, capture uh, that. So with all the translations, I'm not translating that much of the text. And, and I do refer, uh, but, uh, but the passages I cite are my own translations. And I do refer the reader to a couple of the main uh, English translations by page number so they can double check. But the way Dogen's writing works, he's so inventive and innovative and ambiguous in the way he, he puts forth a lot of his ideas. There's double negatives, triple negatives, paradoxes, reversals of me conventional meaning. He's always playing word games to try to draw out the meaning of uh, everyday words that, that indicate something philosophical about Zen. So, you know, I caution the readers, you know, if you look at uh, my translation and you look at two, three, four, five other translations, on any given sentence, they may say the same, sound pretty much the same. On any given sentence, they may sound uh, very different, like there's five or six versions, because Dogen is that difficult to really capture the full meaning and the nuance. Uh, so, you know, I try to do my best and put that forward for the readers. Yeah, and I know it was really appreciated. So Dogen is famous as a founder of the Sato Zen sect. Can you help us to appreciate his impact by giving us a picture of what Japanese Buddhism was like before and after his life? Yeah, so we go to the uh, early 1200s, as I mentioned. And um, Dogen was the second main Zen pilgrim who went to uh, China to uh, study uh, Zen and uh, bring it back to Japan. At that time in Japan, Zen had not been uh, known, or at least a very well known. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting historical phenomenon. Um, you know, everybody's aware that Japan has been very dependent on Chinese culture for much of its history. But at the same time, it's gone through long periods where it was severed from much contact with China. And um, the, uh, the Chinese influences or the travels to China, at least, were not happening very much. And this is what took place just before Dogen's era. So in the 800s, uh, Buddhism was flourishing. The Zen school was one of the leading uh, innovators in China. But because of 
complicated historical situation. The Chinese emperor in the 840s decided to outlaw all foreign religions. Now, we have to keep in mind that Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Zoroastrianism and other religions were also present in some of the major cities of China because of the Silk Road in the 840s. And Buddhism was also considered a foreign religion because it originally came from India. So Buddhism was very much uh, damaged for, for a long time. And the Japanese, hearing that story, were reluctant to travel to, to China to, to study Buddhism because they thought they would get in trouble. Well, it took till uh, the late 1100s for that situation to change. And then a predecessor to Dogen went. And then uh, Dogen tried to kind of emulate the trip of that predecessor and see for himself what was happening. In Japan, going back to Japan, there was one main Buddhist school that kind of had the uh, hegemony in uh, Japan for several hundred years, known as the Tendai school. And the Tendai school was very ritualistic. It did have some form of meditation as part of the rituals, but it, it did not uh, have a, a single-minded focus on sitting meditation as, this, as the main practice and the main way to, to reach nirvana. So that's what uh, Zen Buddhism represented for Dogen. There's other practices that you're going to do you might chant uh, sutras. Um, you're going to have ceremonies for the anniversary of the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment and his death. And you're going to have other kinds of uh, rituals and festivals. But the single main practice that, that monks should do every day, at least four or five hours, every single day of the year, is what's called zazen, sitting meditation. And according to Dogen, the sitting meditation is not done in order to reach nirvana. It's not done in order to make you into a Buddha or an enlightened being, it's done because it's good to do it in itself. That's what he wants to emphasize. Like purposeless Zazen is the way one of the modern interpreters refers to it. And I think that captures the idea. So Dogen's new teaching, which he tried to spread in the capital city of Kyoto, uh, ran into stiff competition from uh, the, um, uh, the leaders of the called the Tendai sect that was kind of dying out. And uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but in, his, uh, in the 1240s, about 15 years after he returned from China, he decided to leave Kyoto and start a new temple up in the mountains. And that's, that temple is still there. It's probably not in the exact location it was, but pr pretty much resembles the way of life they had back in the, back in the 1200s. And, and that's what attracts uh, uh, many visitors. And then uh, after Dogen's life, his sect spread tremendously throughout uh, the countryside in Japan. And still today is one of the largest largest sects in Japan. And another footnote to this is that China is a complicated story, but you know many people are aware that during the Cultural Revolution in the Maoist era in China, many of these old um, institutions were you know shut down and and um, you know went went through a lot of uh, challenges. But um, since then, since the 1980s, uh, the temple that Dogen visited, where he got enlightened in China. Uh, was revived originally by um, by Japanese um, uh, travelers who were saying, hey, this is where Dogen got enlightened. We got to revive this temple. In the 1980s, uh, China was still struggling economically. You know, 30 years later, uh, China is very strong economically. And now many of their uh, people interested in, in the topic uh, go to Dogen's temple in Japan. Uh, again, pre-COVID, but it's interesting to see that uh, cross-fertilization.
That's really interesting. So where does the Rinzai sect come from that you mentioned? Rinzai sect started by Dogen's uh, precursor. Uh, that monk's name was Asai. And he went to uh, China in the 1160s, not even knowing that Zen was prevalent in China. That's how disconnected the two countries were. Zen had been dominant in China for a couple hundred years, but he didn't quite realize that. And he thought he was going to see another style of Buddhism. Then he realized, hey, uh, this place is hopping with Zen. And he uh, didn't know what to make of it exactly. And he came back to uh, Japan abruptly after only six months. But then 20 years later in 1187, he went again and spent four years there. And he kind of uh, paved the way for Dogen, who visited the same temple that uh, Asai did. And Dogen came back, and excuse me, Asai came back, and his branch remained more popular in uh, Kyoto. So a lot of people say that Kyoto, where you had the shoguns and the emperors, uh, they tended to support the Rinzai Zen for various reasons. And and one of the results was that they had amazing um, artwork, paintings, calligraphy, uh, gardens, and of course, uh, poetry. And then the uh, Soto Zen, uh, which uh, left Kyoto and was up in the northern uh, countryside areas, put more emphasis on um, meditation and monastic discipline. But you know, it's never black and white like that. So there's a lot of crossovers, but that that's kind of the view that's, uh, that, you know, that I would tell to um, undergraduate students, you know, introductory students to, so they can get a handle on it. Having previously been a introductory religious studies student, I can okay. tell you that that's appreciated. Yes, right. Yeah. So you have to, you know, cr- create, uh, I don't know, you, I, what do we say? Uh, simplify it. I, I mean, used to think of uh, kind of frozen food. You give them, you give the students a frozen food version. And then when the, you know, for those that are interested and in take your advanced classes or join the, uh, you know, graduate program, then, you know, they get the real, the, uh, the real tasty uh, treats uh, to enjoy. And, and I think it's important to, uh, to at least briefly discuss like what it means to like study religion in an academic sense yeah. Because it's very different from being a practitioner. Right. Or um, so can you briefly describe kind of what that difference is and how you try to communicate that to, to introductory students? Because a lot of them struggle with that at first. Right. And so, so some students, come, you know, there are a handful of students come in who, who maybe have done yoga or some form of meditation and, you know, ha- have a personal interest. And a lot of students come in because it's a required course or it's something that comes on their curriculum and they don't necessarily have much interest. And in fact, they may think like, why do I have to study uh, religion? You know, the uh, separation of church and state and all that. But I think in the case of uh, Japanese uh, religion, um, what you do get is students, again, who are interested in Japanese culture, which has gained so much popularity because of the of the pop culture in, in Japan that's been kind of marketed worldwide as kind of a soft power spreading um, idea, you know, trying to uh, attract people to understand uh, Japan better. But to address your question more specifically, I think um, what you want to try to do or what I try to do is to uh, present the uh, religious uh, history and uh, the practices, the traditions, the institutions, the writings, the scriptures as as historical phenomenon. I mean, I think that's that's been the key to discussing um, religions, um, whether it's whether it's Christianity or Judeo-Christianity or worldwide religions, you know, especially in the post-war era of uh, the academic world in America. 
Um, you're trying to present them as historical phenomenon, but they do have a component that they're based on uh, some kind of spiritual experience. So they're not only historical phenomenon. So there's a sense of trying to uh, understand deeply, empathize, uh, kind of get inside the worldview of people who, um, who who are members of that religion. So I think in any large city in, in America, I'm in Miami, there's many institutions, museums, other, other well, there's many religious institutions and also uh, museums or other cultural organizations that can help introduce somebody to the way uh, many of the world religions uh, work. And that's one thing is to ask students to go on, on field trips or site visits uh, to the institutions. But from my point of view is uh, I, I want to look at the ideas and the methods that the religions used in a very objective way. And we're not advocating or, or criticizing. We're, we're just kind of presenting it, looking at it, trying to understand what it's all about from the inside out, but also, uh, you know, keeping that uh, scholarly distance. So that, that's, a, that's a major difference uh, with the practitioner approach. So I mentioned at the beginning of the talk today that, you know, uh, the book I wrote and other, other writings I have done on Dogen over the years or on Zen more generally over the years, you know, maybe attract a some of the audience um, is is practitioners. Maybe, you know, one time they may have been college students or they still are. And sometimes the practitioners are like, wait a second, you know, I just want to hear what Dogen said to do. I want to hear the instructions. I want to hear, you know, what his right. guidance and, and, you know, my take on that, if I speak to those groups occasionally, is to say, yes, uh, you know, you can do that. But as, as long as I'm the one that's giving the lecture, I'm the one that write, that's writing the book, what I want to do is just kind of explain it as best we can understand it and interpret it from that historical perspective rather than, rather than the insider perspective. So when you were writing about the treasury, you highlighted five sort of main thematic topics that you explored when you were discussing the meaning and method and practice and you know they range from the meaning and reality of buddha nature to the impact of impermanence to the role of language to the importance of reflexivity and meditation to moral consequences so can we talk about a few of those things and explore those sort of five topics yeah uh, thank you for that question so if you read the uh the table of contents in the book i think um most of the chapter titles end in ITY, mentality, reflexivity, temporality are some of the examples. And um, Dogen was a, a great thinker. And I think a, a religion like uh, oh, probably all religions, but let's just stick with Buddhism. Buddhism has a philosophical basis because uh, the Buddhist teachings was that humans are suffering and they want to alleviate that suffering. And in order to do that, you have to analyze human existence, human perception, human understanding of uh, reality. And so, so th those are all kind of philosophical, psychological examinations that are part of the basic Buddhist uh, teachings. And so when you uh, get to Dogen uh, 1500 years or more later than, than the Buddhist original teaching, of course, there were all these interpretations and other writings and scriptures that had built up in the meantime. What Dogen tries to do is to say, let's reevaluate everything from the standpoint of Zazen, sitting meditation. Because there's a lot of varieties of Buddhist schools, he said. There's a lot of interpretations of Buddha. And some people see Buddha as more of a god. Some people see Buddha as just a model uh, teacher. 
and, and areas of gray in between. But the one thing that Buddha stressed was that you had to meditate in order to understand the philosophical components. Okay, so the um, thing about meditation, according to Dogen, is that it allows you to kind of read between the lines of the scriptures to see more clearly and slow down, so to speak, the functions of human perception and, and try to analyze their components. It allows you to appreciate that uh, life is made up of finite, impermanent components. Human existence is impermanent. Everything that's alive is, is, is also in the process of dying. Everything is fleeting. Nothing is going to last forever. And you can appreciate the um, understanding, the mentality, or the way we perceive reality. We can appreciate the temporality or the flow of time leading uh, to the inevitability of death. Uh, you can appreciate reflexivity or how to discipline the mind in order to uh, see things clearly. But at the same time, if you look at Dogen's writings, he's not a philosopher, one, two, three, four, five. So he gave sermons, basically. And in the sermons, a lot of philosophical principles are there. But he also may uh, discuss uh, rituals and he may discuss Buddhist festivals and he may discuss other uh, components of the um, of the religious worldview that he had. So what we try to do as modern scholars, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very influenced by, um, by uh, the, the Japanese academic world and the Japanese scholarship on Dogen, and also other Western scholars have been as well. But what we try to do is kind of break it down. And okay, so what, what I'm offering here is like, let's, let's kind of assume that there was a systematic view of Dogen and Dogen, that Dogen wanted to be a systematic philosopher. What would we do A, B, C, D? That's, that's, that's why you have those uh, five chapters. One question that comes up, and I, I was involved in a uh, colloquium, an international colloquium just a couple of weeks ago, and one component people want to discuss, is Dogen a philosopher or is he a religious thinker? To me, that's not the crucial question. To me, he's a religious thinker, first of all, who has philosophical elements in his, um, in his teaching, and that's the way I would look at it. But he is very uh, similar, uh, or some of his ideas are quite uh, almost uncannily anticipatory of modern trends in philosophy, especially his emphasis on impermanence and the finitude of existence, very similar to uh, Western existential phenomenology and also uh, some of the influences from modern, uh, modern science and physics that have, have uh, entered into um, uh, other philosophical trends known as like process uh, philosophy and, and process theology. It, it is very interesting to see that Dogen, that a lot of the interest in Dogen is not just to go back to the past, but to see that Dogen, among all the Buddhist teachers, he was one of the main uh, figures, especially representing Japan, who really speaks to the 20th and 21st century. It's amazing to see that that influence um, touching on each of these uh, different cultures as well. And uh, at the beginning, you mentioned some of your students and their different motivations for studying Zen Buddhism. And under you, I'm always interested in seeing how pop culture is taking a hold of these things. Uh, regardless of what you um, watch, there's there could be some sort of reference to any sort of religion. Is there, and this may be just sort of an off-the-cuff question, but is there a show or um, form of art that you think honors 
Zen Buddhism really well? Or, you know, do you have to kind of pick and choose and just appreciate the art form for what it is? You mean like an American film or movie that kind of captures the flavor? Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So how the West does it. Um, and of course, manga and anime, you know, they generally coming from the culture itself. Uh, well, let me, we only let me, can glean so let me much. start with Japan for a moment. So one of the traditions that uh, developed in Japan um, was to honor the death anniversary of these favorite figures more than the birth anniversary. So Dogen's um, 800th death anniversary was in uh, 2003. And uh, the 7th 50th was in 1953 and you know you can trace it back every 50 years and and when when there's one of these big anniversaries it's uh time for the temple to do fundraising and to kind of modernize some of their structures to um, reprint some of the library some of the collections of dogen's writings also to um to hold conferences and and publish more books and you know try to get the word out there and, um, you know, it, it, it was a major event um, in Japan and also in U.S. and, and Europe and, and in other places like Brazil, where there's a, a big Japanese community. Now, I, one thing, one of the interesting things was that, um, you know, so what about the people that aren't experts that aren't going to read, you know, really read Dogen in the original, but want to get some of the ideas? So, you know, I noticed in Japan, look, there were a lot of TV shows. There were manga that Gave, talked about Dogen's life or talked about the ideas of, uh, of the treasure of the true Dharma. There was uh, a kabuki play that was produced in downtown uh, Tokyo on, um, on Dogen's life. Now, how do you capture people's attention if he's just sitting in meditation the whole time? You know, so there's a, like, let me give you an example, a very interesting story that, uh, that I think um, is, is one of the things that captures the imagination about people, uh, you know, for people about about Dogen and other historical figures like this. So towards the end of Dogen's career in Japan, the shogun, after several hundred years, when um, Japan was ruled by an aristocracy that was very peaceful and not militant at all, then the samurai culture and the shoguns and the warrior culture took over. And, and they were actually interested in Zen because it was a good form of uh, uh, self-control and self-discipline. But at the same time, a lot of the uh, military figures, including one particular shogun in the uh, 1240s, would get very repentant about a life of violence, and and they would renounce uh, the military status and decide to uh, become monks and meditate. And and this happened to uh, one of the shoguns, and he uh, brought Dogen to his center, which was um, near what's now called Tokyo. Tokyo didn't exist at that time, but anyway, the shogun brought him to his town and said, look, Dogen, you know, I, I, I can set you up here. I, I, you know, I want you to be my personal teacher and I want to build this like fabulous new temple for you that's going to outdo anything that you have up in the, in the mountains of the northern provinces. And, you know, you'll be known throughout the country. And apparently uh, they engaged in a dialogue for six months, according to the traditional accounts. And Finally, the shogun said to Dogen, okay, you've been here six months. Are you going to take my offer or not? According to the legends, Dogen was sitting in meditation when he gave the uh, shogun the answer. And the shogun draws his sword and goes to um, decapitate uh, Dogen. And the power of Dogen's meditation breaks the sword in half. And that was shown in the Kabuki uh, play, you know, in 2003. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, did something like that happen? You know, that's another issue of studying... Um, 
religious studies at the undergraduate level, how do you present that? You know, maybe there's a grain of truth to it. Obviously, the basic uh, discussion and though against declining was uh, was a phenomenon. Now, there's a second part to that story that Dogen goes back to the mountains and he had an entourage of monks with him. And I guess he left one of his officers behind to negotiate with the shogun, any kind of final paperwork or whatever. And, and so that monk comes back to the mountains a few weeks later and says, guess what, Dogen? The shogun gave us some more land so we can expand the temple here. And Dogen, they say, was so upset that the monk had violated the principles of what he had said to the shogun that um, he had the harshest punishment uh, that you can ever have in Zen Buddhism. Can you guess what that punishment would be? Uh, let me ask one of you guys if you if you might want to make a guess there. Would it be sitting very still for a very long time? No, that's 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 a reward. That's not a punishment. <laughs> I would say like, you know, having to buy material things or a mass of material <laughs> things. <laughs> it seems very counter to what Buddhism yeah, I, I, I would say that, uh, that too, since uh, I'm assuming a large part of the reason for being upset about that is, you know, gaining more attachments. Um, yeah, well, those are good guesses. Those are those are good. You know, let me say that I grew up in uh, Philadelphia and, you know, we have the uh, Amish country and Philadelphia was a Quaker city. And so there's a history of these kind of utopian religious movements that happened you know, maybe back in the 1600s, and some of them are still going strong. And if you think of those closed religious movements, closed society of a, of a religious movement where you have to be a committed follower or not, the worst punishment is excommunication. So that's actually what these Zen monasteries had developed. And, and you can see it in their in instructional manuals, you know, how to be the abbot of a Zen temple. And if, if somebody transgresses, and there's no other punishment or the, you know, they've exhausted the other options, excommunicate them, fine. But Dogen took it a step further. So he told the other monks, go to uh, the uh, transgressing monks seat. The way they lived at that time, and it's still practiced today, is you have one huge monks hall and there's a tatami mat, if, you, if you're familiar with that Japanese style, for each monk. And in the tatami mat, you sit in meditation, you sleep there, you keep your few possessions. You don't need many possessions if you're a monk. And so Dogen said, take this guy's seat, his tatami mat, dig it up six feet deep, throw it away. Of course, we're kicking him out. Throw it away, burn all his possessions. But by doing that, we'll say no other monk can ever sit in that spot again. That spot is so contaminated. So that's another interesting part of the story. And then people will say, you know, when when I think in, in modern Japan, you know, you, uh, they're trying to kind of sell Dogen to some of the modern people. Like, what, why, they, you know, modern Japan is, you know, a very secular country in a lot of ways. And they go like, why, why do we need to worry about, you know, Dogen? And does he seem kind of mean spirited here? But at the same time, you know, he's not mean spirited. There's many examples of compassion. And it's like, I think that's a selling point in the sense that, you know, that kind of discipline that he represented, that strong, uncompromising view, kind of take it or leave it, you do the right thing or, or not kind of view is a powerful moral message that whether we can all carry, try to carry that out or we want to carry that out. But that, that's, um, that's examples in the popular culture, uh, to go back to the question that, that I think Dogen uh, gets across. 
I think if there's, you know, what coming to my mind, and this is kind of old movie, but maybe, uh, but a lot of people still know that famous Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Vertigo. You remember um, the main character there, it has the fear of heights and uh, he, he, you know, that that kind of determines his behavior. And then he's uh, deceived by people that are trying to basically rip him off. And then he finds a woman and he's not sure if she's the one who ripped him off or he's, he's, she's the one he's in love with and all that. So I won't go into the whole plot. But if you remember the final scene where he's kind of climbing to the top of a tower and kind of and looking down and then and then the uh, woman that he's facing is is with him. Now, the reason I bring that up in a Zen standpoint and from a Zen standpoint is, first of all, I think the time when Zen first became very popular in the U.S. was in the it was in the, that time period in the late 1950s. Uh, the jazz movement, the uh, beat poetry movement, Jack Kerouac on the road, uh, Zen was really coming into the popular culture. You know, I was a young kid then, and I I, I started. You know, that's how I got kind of influenced by it. There were a lot of movies also about about Japan. Some of them starred Marlon Brando and some of the famous. Um, actors of the time and got people interested but in that movie whether hitchcock was aware thinking of this or not we don't know but in that movie the idea is you face your doubts you face your perplexity you face your confusions and uncertainty and you know that's not something i emphasized uh, so far in this talk but i think you know if we go back to some of the uh, questions like the the five steps of the philosophy that's in in the treasure of the true dharma i a key to it uh, for Dogen is doubt. Doubt everything. You know, don't don't take anything for granted. Kind of like the Cartesian idea. You know, skeptic, mm-hmm. uh, take take skepticism all the way. And uh, doubt is kind of uh, is of course troubling because uh, what are you left to hold on to? What what's what's your security blanket? Where where do you hang your hat, so to speak, on in terms of finding uh, stability and meaning? But I think the um, another thing that Dogen represents is that when, as a young man, when he went to China, and he was one of the first uh, pilgrims to do that in, in, a, in a long time, in, in an era where there wasn't much contact between the countries, he had to kind of give everything up. He had to just say, look, I'm, I'm seeking truth. I don't care what else happens. And so that's another thing that I think re- resounds in Dogen. Now, in the Hitchcock movie, he didn't necessarily find truth or the truth he found was tragic. But it kind of reminds me of that of that feeling that I think Dogen and also the other uh, Zen schools emphasize. It's really interesting to me that this conversation is kind of turned towards culture, especially since Dogen, you wrote quite a bit about how he weighed in to conversations about the role of language right. in the practice and the teaching and the exploration of Buddhism more broadly, but also within his Zen teaching and talking about the role of language today and its capacity and its ability to convey concepts or not to convey concepts is really a a fairly significant issue on the American religious landscape, especially if you think about, you know, some of the disputes that you see in the news in in Christian circles. So I'm curious about if you could talk to us a little bit more about how Dogen weighed into those conversations, because he liked a, a koan, right? He liked a, a good story to yes. kind of springboard his teaching. Right. So the koans are stories. They're usually something perplexing and paradoxical. But Dogen said there's meaning in everything. That's one thing, one of his views about the language that's uh, very interesting. Uh, first of all, of course, he's coming from Japan. Japan had been influenced by 
Chinese literature, even though there wasn't much travel back and forth for a while. The, if you were a Buddhist in Japan, you read classical Chinese. People say, you know, it's like reading Latin in medieval, in medieval Europe. Uh, that, was, that was the language that you were going to ha have read. But it wasn't the lang a language that you would speak. It wasn't a language that you would integrate into your ordinary uh, way of thinking. It was, it was kind of a very specialized language that the monks studied. So Dogen tried to break down that barrier. So when he came back from China... He took the koans, which were written in Chinese, which has a very different grammar, very different syntax pronunciation from Japanese, although they do use the same characters uh, that have pretty much the same meaning, but they have a different pronunciation and grammatical system. So he took that and integrated it with Japanese. That's one thing he tried to say is like, I'm going to cross over the languages and, and kind of force you to, to uh, self-reflect. If you're, if you're reading it from the Japanese side, you got to think of the meaning of the characters more deeply. If you're reading the characters from the Chinese side, you got to think of the Japanese um, uh, grammatical structure more deeply. What's an example? Well, uh, you know, people talk about this. It's one of many examples. He takes the word sometimes, and it's a simple word, right? If you think about it, what, what does sometimes mean? Well, <laughs> I think Augustine said, you know, we all, we all, well, see, he, he said something about time, like we all experience time, but if you ask me, if you ask me to explain it, uh, you know, I don't have anything to say. Something, I, uh, something like that. I'm, I'm probably not getting that exactly right. But, but the point is that time is one of the hardest things because we're everything we do is shaped. All our thoughts are shaped by time. As soon as we say something, it's over. You know, that's already past tense, and we're anticipating something else. And so he takes the simple word sometimes, and he said, well, you know, this the word some, what we call some in English, in Chinese it means uh, there is or something exists. And he said, hey, wait a second, even that simple word has a very deep meaning because it's saying that every time we do something, it's part of existence, it's part of being, it's part of reality. It's not just in a, in a, a framework separate. Time is not like an arrow flying by, time is something we live each moment. And every time we do something that exists, there's a temporal dimension to it. So he writes a whole chapter on uh, that has the title time, uh, Existence Time or Being Time. And he makes that kind of wordplay very, very frequently where he tries to draw out the simple meaning uh, from an apparently simple phrase or, or, or word and tries to draw out a uh, philosophical discussion. But he also says, like, there's no final answers. One of the phrases he likes to use is we make mistake upon mistake. That's how it's usually translated in English. But the implication is you keep making mistakes until you make the right mistake. So insight is another image he uses entangling vines, tangled vines. You know, usually we think of, you know, if there's if there's ivy that's crawling up and we want to pull it down, you know, the, the vines come cascading upon us and and it's hard to pull them apart. But he says you got to work with that. That's mistake after mistake until you get the insight, until the clarity comes through. So, yes, I think. Um, you know, the implication of Dogen for religious language is that, you know, um, in Taoism, you know, they say those who um, know don't speak and those who speak um, probably don't know. And, and Dogen was influenced that uh, by that kind of view in East Asia. But he also wants to say that every form of speaking is a form of knowing. Even if we say something that seems completely wrong and fallacious and delusional, it probably has a, a degree of truth embedded in it. So the aim is to work through it, uh, disentangle the vines, 
trying to find the right view out of the out of the series of mistakes that that we're going to make. So unlike the uh, some forms of Zen, the especially the Rinzai school, which was more influenced by that Taoist view of silence. You know, silence is the uh, kind of the ultimate answer. I guess uh, Wittgenstein said something like, the, you know, that which we don't know about, we can't, we, you know, we can't speak about. It's a little bit similar uh, view. But Dogen said, no, you keep speaking. Don't stop here. So a lot of times in his um, sermons, you know, most of his writings are basically sermons that were oral presentations that he delivered to monks or other, other sometimes lay followers as well. Uh, a lot of times at the end, he says like, okay, my predecessor said it this way. Even my own teacher said it, explained something a certain way. But here I am today, and I'm going to explain it a little bit differently. And then he'll turn to the audience and say, no, you explain it. Those explanations, if they were given, aren't recorded. So we don't know what happened uh, <laughs> at the end of those results usually. But but that's that's another modern emphasis that I think that Dogen has that, that people are intrigued by. Now, I just read something uh, in, in a Japanese study of Dogen where they evoke the word scarab. I, I had to uh, check this out because uh, scarab referring to the beetle that was kind of uh, divinized in ancient Egypt because it rolled, it rolled the dung and that was kind of considered to be symbolic of, of the creator God rolling the sun along in the sky. So the word scarab has this very elevated meaning for, for something that seems kind of uh, trivial and, and um, you know, down in the, in the dirt. This author who was using the word to interpret Dogen's writings said, um, you know, another aspect of, of the scarab as a, as a dung beetle, um, even though it was celebrated as a kind of divinity, uh, they also knew that um, if it comes in contact with you, it's, it can sting you, it can, you know, it can, it can harm the uh, human. So it, it's a double-edged sword. Another saying that is, was, was commonly used in, in, in Zen writings and, you know, also has some uh, biblical parallels, the double-edged sword image. But the, the image of the scarab was that, hey, this is something that can damage you, but it can also redeem. And they were saying that's kind of the role of language. Yeah, if you if you if you use it for to reinforce delusions and misconceptions, um, you can say all you want about mistake after mistake leads to the right mistake. It's still reinforcing problematic views. But if you do work with it and you can see the beneficial side, then it's it's liberating. And so for Dogen, language is a form of uh, liberation, but you have to really work at it and persevere to get to that stage where you can appreciate it. I think that is a very powerful notion in our world today. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to say that that seems very poignant, uh, especially today. Um, I like uh, especially the image of the, how you described it with the vines persisting through until you get it untangled. I constantly see on social media, uh, you know, these little warning advertisements, you know, like make sure you track back the information to its source. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's sort of that same practice. So this sort of is brings me back to that, you know, like you can turn that process of fact checking and all of that into into some sort of something a little bit more worthwhile than just, you know, making sure that, you know, this Facebook ad is is accurate or something. It's right it's about a, a more disciplined and careful life that, you know, you can point that to. Yes, good. Uh, I appreciate that. And to add to that, let me uh, mention another uh, passage in Dogen, um, where he talks about four kinds of people. He said, a, a true, a truly enlightened person doesn't think about whether they're enlightened or not. That word doesn't 
is not in their vocabulary anymore because if they as soon as they start thinking about it, they get attached to that and, and then it becomes a source of pride. So that's that's the most elevated. Uh, but then a lot of people are kind of on the path and maybe they're close to being enlightened and they have some wisdom and they're trying to affirm it and develop it and cultivate that, but it's still kind of elusive. That's the second level. And then the uh, third level is the people that don't know enough to get motivated to seek the enlightenment because they just accept, they'll just accept the commonplace world. But in that world, you know, they have some misconceptions, but they also have some accurate views. Uh, but the fourth kind is the people that come, he, he says, is the people that um, are kind of all too eager to compound delusion upon delusion. And um, once, once they, uh, you know, so they don't have the fact checker. They don't have the good angel sitting on their shoulders saying like, no, no, you got to, you know, you got to rethink this. You got to correct this. And when you kind of hopelessly spiral into delusion upon delusion, actually for Dogen, he would still say that even if you lived in the, like a ghost in a dark cave on the uh, far side of the mountain, that's kind of the image for the most deluded of delusions where the sun doesn't you know penetrate the light of insight doesn't come, doesn't seem to come but even there he would say the grain of truth is still available so um even there you you can turn it around um it's never you know it's it's never a lost cause that's where he he stresses that um if you keep working with the the thinking and the language it'll It'll help that uh, liberation to break through. Yeah, the real sort of like whoa moment for me where I had to put down the book was when I got to that image of using the vines to untangle the vines <laughs> and and just kind of sit there for a minute with that. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I think you, you mentioned you're in, in South Carolina or I. I... Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of living in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina okay. right now. Well, because um. In that part of the country, is there the kudzu vine or the? Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, okay, yeah. I grew up in Philly and I'm in South Florida, so I haven't experienced it. But you know, the kudzu is a is a loan word from Japanese because that was in the early 20th century. Apparently, you know, some some Japanese immigrants happened to bring um, get this plant. settled into you know uh, us and then it kind of spread wildly right so yeah if you think of it, it's like you said it's everywhere you can't get rid of it so that's i get you know that that seems to be what he's 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 saying but yeah it's an interesting term here the entangled vines it can refer to the physical plant and we get that very concrete image of of it spreading and how to, how do you get rid of it but i guess the the word back in dogen's day was also used to mean like uh, when things were overly complicated, when, when somebody deliberately or without realizing their intention makes things deliberately complicated. So a writer that's kind of too, where the rhetoric or the, uh, is kind of too elegant and the, and the real uh, moral message is missing, or uh, there's too much flourish, or there's too much uh, pretension in the writing or whatever the uh, cultural expression is. And that's what the word kind of symbolized in Dogen's era. But Dogen, again, takes a very optimistic view and says, uh, yeah, you, you know, even in that pretentious language, if you weed out the, uh, uh, the tendrils that are spreading in the wrong direction, you know, you can kind of retain it and cultivate it and turn it into something productive. Yeah, I'm going to be, I think, sitting with that image for a long time. And it, it was kind of a moment, too, where it, a light bulb went on in my head. I've had the the uh, koan treasury 
um, I think titled Entangling Vines sitting by my bedside. That's right. Yes, yes. There is a, um, a koan collection, a, a very good translation of that, uh, of, of one of those. So, you know, there's dozens and hundreds and thousands of, of koans, uh, but uh, there's also uh, some collections where, you know, it's limited to 100 usually or maybe a couple hundred examples. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because some of them are kind of these moral stories. Some of them are the, just these quirky dialogues. One of the things that, um, and I, I discussed this in, I think, chapter seven of the book. So what happens in a, in a koan often is, or the way it's usually read, is that there's a monk, and usually a lot of times there's a, an anonymous monk who asks a teacher a question and trying to stump the teacher. And the teacher kind of dodges a direct answer and says something deliberately puzzling. And then a lot of times the student either gets enlightened or just gives up and walks away and comes back, maybe tries again the next day. So one of the main examples is a monk says to a teacher who's sitting in meditation, he goes like, when you're sitting quietly in meditation, uh, what do you think about? You know, it's not a natural enough question. Uh, do you stop thinking or, you, you know, is, can you turn your mind off totally? And some forms of um, yoga would, you know, may make that uh, view um, but in this koan, uh, the teacher says, I think about not thinking. And so the student says, well, how do you think about not thinking? And then the teacher says, using another negative first syllable, he says, non-thinking. He kind of makes a distinction between thinking, not thinking, and non-thinking. And here's where Dogen, I, I think, is really ingenious in his interpretation of this. So if you look at mostly interpretations, traditional and a lot of the modern writings about the koans, usually they kind of look at it as kind of a dialectic. You go from the thinking to its negation, non-thinking, and then not thinking, and then the non-thinking must be some kind of all-encompassing unity and uh, some progression, or if you think of a kind of triangle pyramid effect that non-thinking is up on the summit of the peak of the pyramid, and, and um, the other oppositions are kind of circulating around but Dogen said, you know, that when the student, the anonymous monk, who we assume was not enlightened, asked the teacher who we assume was enlightened, the question, according to Dogen, both of them were actually enlightened. Because even in the ghost cave on the dark side of the mountain, the uh, light of illumination is still shining. So he said when he asked the question, he wasn't saying, what are you thinking about? He was saying, like, Oh, when you're sitting in meditation, you're thinking. Like he reworks the whole grammatical structure. So it's not a question, it's like a statement. And then, so the conclusion that Dogen tries to get to in analyzing, kind of micro-analyzing the structure of the dialogue is to say that uh, non-thinking is kind of a, a, a level of intuition or a preconceptual level uh, that is always going through us. It's, it's, it's happening all the time. It's not something over and above or beyond the other levels. So as soon as we think we're thinking or, th or we think we're not thinking, we're already engaged with this level of non-thinking. And, and in that level of non-thinking, you know, a genuine awareness is going to come forward. You know, I, that, that's another example of the disentangling uh, vines. Well, I could keep going with this conversation all day, uh, but we are running out of time, I think, for our typical time slot that we aim for. And I have found this conversation dare I say, enlightening. Uh, but you, we usually... What a terrible pun, John. <laughs> we were doing so well, too. 
<laughs> well, I can't let Garrett have all the puns all the time. But each week we decide, we try to conclude by sort of ending on sort of a fairly optimistic note. And so we like to end by just sort of asking everybody what's bringing them joy at the end of the week or during the week, what's getting you through the week if you're not necessarily feeling joy or, or happiness from any particular kind of thing. So who wants to start that? Does anybody want to share what's bringing them joy? Dr. Hine, would you like to share a little bit with I'll, us? I'll go last. <laughs> all right. All right. Who wants to go first then? Uh, I'll start. I started taking up the practice of journaling. So um, just to kind of center my thoughts and uh, reflect on the day and try and be a little bit more organized. I, it's a good practice because uh, I love to write, uh, but I haven't been able to write creatively like I used to. So uh, just the physical practice of putting words on page, even if it's not some sort of creative venture has been has been good. Yeah, I found the writing that I've been doing very satisfying and I'm sure most of it will not see the light of day. So welcome, welcome, friend, to that circle. It's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, for me, what's giving me uh, joy right now is that I'm about 13 days away from a vacation. And that is uh, giving me a lot of hope and joy that there's going to be a little bit of rest coming. So. I'm just a little bit, though, right? Um, and just for everyone's clarity's sake, I'm going on vacation with John and Garrett. <laughs> We're going to try very hard not to spread COVID to each other. Yeah, so in the vein of last week, you know, last week I shared the story about almost breaking my brother's nose in a fencing match and how much joy that brought me. Not because I wanted to break his nose, but just because he'd showed up with those saber trainers and we got in a fence for the first time in a long time. Uh, but I have recently rediscovered, or maybe rediscovered, maybe discovered, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, on YouTube, The Kendo Show, which is hosted and made by the owner of, of Kendo Star that makes Kendo equipment and, and imports it to England and other places. And it's really high quality, cool stuff, but it's it's feeding something in me since I can't go and practice Kendo right now. So it's it's bringing me a lot of joy to sit there and at least listen to people talk about it on the internet for 10 to 30 minutes at a time. Okay. So, um, I, I, um, I think we've all had, uh, this kind of feeling to some extent, which is that when the, uh, COVID started almost a year ago now, even though there were internet conversation devices, Skype and zoom and FaceTime. Yeah. And, and all that, uh, I think we all use them in a kind of a limited way. And when, when all of a sudden, you know, teaching was by Zoom and working was by Zoom and everything was by Zoom, it seemed overwhelming and kind of depressing at first. But, you know, as time has gone by, I realized that, you know, now I'm kind of regularly talking to um, colleagues in uh, Europe or China or Japan or other parts of the world or, or U.S., by Zoom in a way that was available to us, but we didn't really think to do it that much. Sometimes in, in you know, small workshops or sometimes just one-on-one. -on -one. And so that's, uh, you know, when you when you look at the uh, silver, you know, you realize that the silver lining that developed, that's that's a bit of joy that <laughs> I've been feeling recently. Including you, you gentlemen here, so. <laughs> yes, well, we've had such a good time. Yeah. And you know, we've, we've done something similar where we've been having a lot of conversations together and, and seeing friends that we wouldn't have necessarily seen. You know, we started right. a podcast yeah. 
And uh, I know my wife and I had some friends who moved to Bermuda, and it was the same kind of thing. Like, we were thinking about using Zoom, and then all of a sudden COVID set made it so that we were actually setting dates to hang out and talk right. about video and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hine. Uh, where can people find you if they want to look you up? Okay, if you go to um, my homepage for that has uh, my publications and bio, is part of the Asian Studies Program. So asian.fiu.edu and uh, slash, I guess it's Stephen Dash Hine, where if you look for the director's homepage, um, you know, a lot of the information is there. A lot of PDF files of um, of, uh, of publications and and so forth, if if you're interested. And of course, Amazon for for books, um, the easiest thing is to check Amazon. All right. Well, thank you so much. The book that we've been talking about has been Readings of Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma Eye by Dr. Stephen Hine been wonderful to have you today. Uh, For those of you guys who are still listening and and paying close attention through the end of the show, we want to ask you to like, subscribe, share, etc. wherever you can. Uh, Review us wherever you can. We love five-star reviews. I need to think of another clever way to say that. But thank you so much for listening. This has been Logos-ish. We'll have more next week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us to get the word out about all the cool stuff we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Take a swing by the website to see some of the writing we've been doing at logosish.com. Have a great week.